Discussing anything related to the Confederacy and slavery is a pretty hot button topic, especially since the Confederacy has its passionate apologists and critics. But generally, in a lot of the more popular debates on the issue, both sides do tend to hold that the Confederacy was a decentralized political ideology inherited from the principles of Jeffersonian democracy, and that it focused on states' rights, nullification, and an agrarian conservatism. This claim was made regularly by former Confederates throughout the post-Civil War period, who nostalgically depicted an antebellum South of stately plantations, chivalrous cavaliers, and contented slaves, and that their participation in the Civil War was a fight to preserve this culture. Historian James McPherson, certainly no Confederate apologist, summarized the Confederacy's fight as a drive to, quote, preserve its version of the Republic of the Founding Fathers, a government of limited powers, whose constituency comprised an independent gentry and yeomanry of the white race, undisturbed by large cities, heartless factories, restless free workers, and class conflict, unquote. Other historians, eager to champion Lincoln's massive political centralization, have claimed that the South's naive adherence to political and economic decentralization was in fact what cost them the war. And in the words of historian Joseph Stromberg, quote, unionists pityingly dismiss Richmond's war effort as not measuring up to Lincolnian statism due to the South's supposed perverse states' rights fetish. However, despite the amount of material out there making this claim, the Confederacy was actually the opposite of a decentralized, limited government. While some scholars, such as Emory Thomas, have attempted to make the case that the Confederacy only abandoned its commitment to states' rights as an emergency war measure, others, such as um, John Mayevsky, have clearly demonstrated that the South had a more complex and selective adherence to political decentralization long before the Civil War. And in fact, the state's rights political ideology, usually identified with the antebellum South, was consistently a response to specific political circumstances. Throughout the antebellum period, Southern politicians regularly espoused states' rights and decentralization, while simultaneously advocating federal and state intervention whenever it served Southern interests. This was not the result of wartime exigencies, with the South, quote, being dragged kicking and screaming, unquote, into the modern age. Rather, it was part of an ongoing antebellum Southern state activism designed to make the slave-based agrarian South economically competitive with Northern entrepreneurialism and wage labor. And when war did break out, the Confederate government, in its need to now defeat the North on the battlefield, implemented a shockingly progressive command economy on a scale capable of rivaling Stalin's five-year plan, Mao's Great Leap Forward, and FDR's New Deal. So how did the Confederacy get there? As already mentioned, the South was no stranger to state interventionism. It was a necessary component to maintaining an economic system based on coerced labor, in fact. As one Southern politician put it, no economic system demands more government protection than the system of slavery. And that's because slavery, while profitable, is simply not efficient. This observation has been the subject of a lot of economic historical debate over the past 100 years. For a while in the 40s and 50s, and even as late as Eugene Genovese's work in the 70s, Marxist historians maintained that Southern slavery was actually unprofitable in some sense to slave owners, and that basically 
Slavery was a feudal holdover representing bourgeois prestige and built around paternalistic hegemonic relationships between master and slave rather than being pursued for capitalist profits. But in actuality, Southern slave owners were very much interested in the dollars and cents of slavery. And this is something that the recent New York Times 1619 project actually gets right. Southern slave owners saw themselves as progressive businessmen on the cutting edge of empire building, trying to make the American South a quote, great highway of nations, unquote. And chattel slavery was a morally justified piece to this empire building. Because as South Carolinian governor James Henry Hammond wrote, in his letter to an English abolitionist, there is no such thing as abstract, absolute natural rights, only relative social rights. Wrote, Man does not have, quote, strictly speaking, any rights at all, unquote. And since all societies restrict our rights and liberties in some way or another, the economic system of slavery was only different from northern wage labor as a matter of expediency. Southern planters loudly maintained that slavery's profitability would in fact soon demonstrate that the economic future of the world would be a slave system, not wage labor. But in order to make this claim, Southerners had to contend with the fact that for all of its profitability, Southern slavery was not an efficient system, and especially not so when compared to wage labor. And this is where we part ways with the 1619 Project and the new history of capitalism which has claimed that Southern slavery was the source of US wealth and prosperity. According to this narrative, slavery is both America's original sin that we must atone for and the source of our wealth that we must make reparations for. But in reality, slavery actually impoverished the South overall. And if you wanna see hard evidence for this, then um, there's actual figures comparing the output per capita between the South, including its slave population and that of the North. Southern planters were well aware of the efficiency cost of using coerced labor. They regularly had to deal with runaways, slave revolts, and other forms of slave resistance, all of which required extensive slave patrols to capture and return runaways. In order to deal with these added expenses, Southern planters pushed the costs off onto the government and then the taxpayer. In some cases, it's done by having the state militia perform slave patrols, or even through mandatory slave patrol service by the local inhabitants which basically served as a peacetime draft. Such laws existed throughout southern states, but also extended to northern states as well through the Fugitive Slave Act, which federally mandated that law enforcement in northern free states had to participate in pursuing and arresting runaway slaves. Many of the free states attempted to resist these laws, and southerners loudly denounced northern state nullification and noncompliance with the Fugitive Slave Act planters insisted that they would be ruined without this mandated enforcement, particularly in border states where slaves could easily slip away across the border, and then it would be on slave owners to pay for their capture and return if northern states could simply refuse to comply. Slave owners also used the state to make slave manumission through self-purchase illegal. And this was widespread throughout the southern states, and in five of the southern states on the eve of the Civil War, slave owners actually had to acquire the permission of state legislatures if they wanted to free any of their slaves. So sla southern planters were actually pushing for laws regulating the private sale of legally recognized property in these instances. 
One of the reasons for these laws was because manumission creates um, populations of free blacks in the South, and that made it harder for slave patrols if they couldn't simply racially identify who was free versus who was slave. And this, incidentally, is also why the South had tons of laws regulating and prohibiting interracial, interracial interactions, including marriage. So we have not just laws on what Southerners could do with their private property, but laws regulating communication and relationships between free citizens. Southern states also tried to encourage the growth and development of the plantation system through state-supported agricultural research, government investment in railroads, and interventionist trade policies. However, despite all of this state intervention, Southerners didn't actually want a centrally planned economy. What they wanted was a government that was capable of providing a guiding hand and encouraging private investment in areas they deemed most essential to growing the plantation system. But by pushing these economic inefficiencies of slave labor off onto the taxpayer, Southern planters were putting a ball and chain on the rest of the South's economy. And this wasn't totally accidental either. Southern planters saw the North's rising middle class of capitalist entrepreneurs as one of their greatest competitors. And they passed laws in the South, not only to discourage immigration to the South, but also to discourage poorer Southerners from forming such a middle class. The ruling Southern plantocracy also passed property requirements for political competition to further legislate away competition. The line between Southern freemen and slave could be shockingly thin at times. Southern intellectual George Fitzhugh wrote defending such regulation, quote, society is the being, and he, one of the members of that being. He has no rights whatever as opposed to the interests of society. And that society may very properly make any use of him that will redound to the public good. Whatever rights he has are subordinate to the good of the whole, and he has never ceded rights to it, for he was born its slave and had no rights to cede." Unquote. Thus, on the eve of the Civil War, using government protectionism, Southern slavery was not on the verge of dying of natural causes. It was, in fact, very much alive and well leeching off of the general society. But the status quo was then threatened with Lincoln's election, as now federal subsidization of slavery through enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act and slave expansion of the territories would be threatened by a Republican executive. For years, the economic gap between the North and South had been widening, but Southern Democrats had managed to largely control key elements of the federal government, particularly the military, with which they had attempted to acquire vast territory in the American Southwest, Central America, and the Caribbean for the expansion of U.S. slavery. Northern Republicans at the time angrily calculated that the U.S. government was now spending more on the military than they had during the recent Mexican-American War, which incidentally had also been a Southern Democrat land grab. But at this point, the South was rapidly realizing that it was losing its political hold. The North's increasing population meant that Southern Democrats would eventually lose the House of Representatives forever, and Lincoln's election in 1860 was the first evidence that they'd also lost the executive. Later that year, as Southern delegates met at state conventions to discuss secession, they were all forced to wrestle with the question that George Wythe Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's grandson, put to the Virginia Convention. He asked, will the material interests of Virginia be promoted by adhering to the North or by joining the Southern Confederacy. 
And the conclusion that had been creeping on them for years was that the only way that southern planters could hope now to effectively compete with northern manufacturing and British wage labor was to have a national state solely devoted to the southern cause. But with secession came war. And the Confederacy was suddenly faced with having to fight a modern conflict that it was simply not prepared for. The North was an economic powerhouse capable of fielding and supplying a massive army with arms and munitions, all of which required huge industrial factories for military manufacturing, as well as an interconnected web of transportation lines to connect these factories and then deliver the completed products to the front. And the South lacked all of this. In fact, one county in Connecticut manufactured firearms in 1860 worth 10 times more than the, that produced in all the southern states combined. The South's economic policies had been designed only to su supply the infrastructure required to meet the needs of the plantations. In fact, the single iron factory of note in the South, the Tredegar Iron Works, had only survived by selling almost exclusively to the U.S. government. So here's where the effects of the plantocracy's political and economic control over the South began to strangle their own cause. The Industrial Revolution had taken over 50 years to form in Great Britain, France, and the Northern United States. But industrial organization at this level that the South required needs capitalists and entrepreneurs able to direct and manage the industry. In other words, the very entrepreneurial middle class that the Southern elites had mocked in the North and suppressed in their own states. So how could the Confederacy spontaneously and simultaneously industrialize without giving up its plantocracy? In the words of Civil War historian Raimondo Loreghi, the South consciously confronted the enemy on the only terms that a backward, inefficient, pre-capitalist system might try to fight such a war, by jumping over the capitalist era into a completely new one, an era of a sort of state socialism. Confederate problem was a unique one at the time. During the French Revolution, the French had resorted to state socialism in the early years of the revolution, but this had really just been for the purpose of acquiring revenue, not for starting an industrial revolution. And it wasn't until the 20th century that we'd have the examples of Stalinist Russia and Maoist China to study. So the Confederacy was completely in uncharted waters. In the Soviet Union, since foreign loans had been out of the question, they had managed to acquire the necessary funding for industrialization by seizing the land and produce from the small farmers and transferring vast amounts of the nation's wealth from the country to the urban centers of industry. In China, Mao sold Chinese agricultural produce for Soviet machinery in order to bring industry to the countryside. And both cases were remarkably successful if you don't count the millions of people that died as a result of starvation. Uh, through forced industrialization, Stalin and Mao had managed to propel their countries from a near-feudal economy into the nuclear age. And compared to these shining examples, the Confederacy was going to attempt to achieve an unbelievable amount of industrialization in just four short years, all while facing a military invasion. Um, to quote Loregi again, the hurdles of the Confederacy had to face were simply astounding. And they first of all needed to achieve, quote, Forced industrialization, second prevalence of heavy war industry, and third speed, a speed that had to be far superior to that of both Russia and China. Certainly no Confederate leaders had, uh, certainly Confederate leaders had no plans, no examples to follow, no guidelines. 
they had to proceed stumbling like blind men exploring new terrain. Nevertheless, what they achieved, the creative solutions that sprang from bare necessity was amazing." Unquote. Initially, the Confederacy tried to follow the usual routes for increasing revenue, such as tariffs, taxes, and loans, but these all had limited success in meeting the Confederacy's massive financial war needs. The tariff, which was initially the Confederacy's primary source of revenue, was severely hampered both by the Union blockade and, ironically, also the Confederacy's disastrous embargo of their own trade goods. Taxation also met with limited success. Increased property taxes and a progressive income tax were levied over the whole population, but compared to the North, the South didn't have much taxable wealth and they only managed to cover a mere 8% of their expenses through taxes. The Confederacy was more successful, however, with property seizure paying as much as 17% of their expenses through confiscated property belonging to Northerners that lived in the South, as well as seizing Southern goods and supplies declared necessary for the war effort, which the government paid back, for the, um, back through the Quartermaster Bureau at undervalued fixed prices with devalued Confederate currency. Meanwhile, domestic and foreign loans managed to cover an additional quarter of Confederate needs, 25%, but these became increasingly difficult to acquire as the war progressed, and in its struggle to find an adequate source of revenue, the South turned to what governments always do, to the printing press. Although initially reluctant to leave hard specie, the Confederacy was ultimately forced to pay for the bulk of their expenses through printed treasury notes. In fact, the Confederate treasury ended up printing an impressive $1 billion which was double the amount printed in the North. The resulting inflation was the worst in US history. Over the next four years, the price level increased by 5,000%, and by January of 1865, the South had so devalued their currency that $100 had the same purchasing power as $1 had in January of 61. Meanwhile, the Confederate government was using these resources and federal control to propel their economy into the industrial age. All existing manufacturing was contracted out by the government, and private industry was encouraged by offering to lend 50% of the initial expense and as much as one-third of the value of the projected output. However, these industries were then forced to sell almost exclusively to the Confederate government, and the government eventually established fixed pricing in order to prevent war profiteering. In fact, the government was so effective at controlling business profits that businessmen actually feared more than they wanted government contracts, as they usually had to produce at a loss or with very small earnings. And what little profits businesses did manage to eke out were swallowed up by eventual inflation. And it became so bad that rather than trying to sell their products to the government, most businesses simply chose to turn um, their business over to the state to be run by them. And business owners, the few that attempted to bypass these regulations, were faced with a myriad of government strong-arm tactics. Through the Conscription Act of 1862, the government was able to relocate private workers from any private business that proved difficult to work with. Also, the state could refuse to allow raw materials to reach such industries. Near the end of the war, after the Confederacy nationalized all transportation, they used these same tactics by withholding access to railroads, steamboats, canals, and communication lines. And as exactly would occur later in the Soviet Union and China, the Confederacy leaped from near zero industry to being able to compete with the great manufacturers of the world. General Joseph 
uh, Josiah Gorgias, the chief of Confederate ordnance, wrote in 1863 in his diary, it is three years ago today since I took charge of the ordnance department. I have succeeded beyond my utmost expectations. Where three years ago we were not making a gun, pistol, nor a saber, no shot nor shell except at the Tredegar works, we now make all these in quantities to meet the demands of our large armies. The level of production at these plants was truly astounding. By 1864, the state of Alabama was producing four times more iron than any other state, north or south, had produced prior to the war. The Ordnance Bureau's powder works were the second largest in the world. Economic historian Jeffrey Rogers Hummel recounts that, in addition to the powder mill, chemical plant, small arms factories, and foundries belonging to Gorgeous's Ordnance Bureau, the Confederate Navy set up its own cannon foundry and powder mill, as well as numerous shipyards. The Niter and Mining Bureau extracted and refined coal, iron, copper, niter, and lead. The Confederate Quartermaster Bureau ran its own clothing, shoe, and wagon factories. The southern state governments also operated arsenals, powder mills, textile mills, flour mills, salt works, and a variety of other enterprises. In addition to taking over manufacturing, the Confederate government also began to expand its control over the means of production into the plantations themselves. Hummel again. The states, in their effort to stimulate food production and help enforce the cotton embargo, imposed limits upon the acreage of cotton and tobacco that planters could grow and prohibited the distillation of liquor. The central government, meanwhile, acquired such large stockpiles of cotton through its produce loans that the, and the tax in kind that the government quickly became the market's largest cotton merchant. Cotton was the South's white gold, their main export. So if the government controlled its production, why not also its transportation and sale? In 1863, the Confederate War Department began buying its own merchant ships. And a year later, the Confederate Congress granted President Davis total regulatory control over foreign experts and banned the importation of all goods that it considered non-essential, quote unquote. The South had now completely nationalized its foreign commerce. And this was soon followed up by the nationalization of all transportation and communication lines throughout the Confederacy. Confederate war socialism had by this point also reached into all areas of society. The Confederate government instituted a nationwide tracking system that required all train passengers to acquire a special government pass in the hopes of being able to catch deserters and draft dodgers. Uh, and to this end, they also unleashed former slave patrols upon the general populace, um, truly turning the Confederate states into a slave, a slave system. So not only using the, same, uh, using the same system that had been used on the slave populations on the general populace now. In 1862, the Confederate government instituted the first and most widespread national conscription in American history. As the all-volunteer army had begun melting away at the end of its year-long enlistment, Senator Lewis Wigfall of Texas announced on the Senate floor that we must Quote, cease this child's play. The enemy are in some portions of almost every state in the Confederacy. Virginia is enveloped by them. We need a large army. No man has any individual rights which come into conflict with the welfare of the country, unquote. Two-thirds of the congressmen and senators agreed with him, and 80% of the Confederate war population was forcibly mobilized. While initially there were various draft exemptions, 
These quickly tightened as the war dragged on. However, one notable exemption to the draft that was loudly denounced by poor Southerners was a military draft exemption for planters who owned 20 or more slaves. The claim justification for this was to prevent slave insurrections. And it wasn't just whites that were conscripted. The Confederate War Department and Engineer Bureau seized slaves from plantations, providing the state with actual slave labor. The massive Confederate state infrastructure grew and expanded until by the end of the war, the national government had gone from zero employees in 1860 to over 70,000 in a massive, if poorly coordinated bureaucracy that included thousands of tax assessors, tax collectors, and conscription agents. This army of state-paid regulators and enforcers, while adequately serving the single-minded goal of industrializing the nation, were terrifyingly inefficient and routinely misallocated resources, probably not surprisingly. The bloated central state of the Confederacy was now suffocating under its own weight. Uh, back to Jeffrey Hummel. A North Carolinian serving in the Rebel Congress complained towards the war's close that the land was, quote, alive with government officials, thick as locusts in Egypt. He said Richmond was full of them, and even in his small hometown, he could not walk without being elbowed off the streets by them. As the North Carolina congressman belatedly realized, Southerners had permitted, quote, too much of brass button and bayonet rule in the country, unquote. These government locusts were now bringing the people to the brink of starvation and poverty. Through inflation, taxation, and real reallocation of food, the South was facing widespread famine. Bread riots broke out in Richmond and had to be put down by the militia. Multiple armed revolts appeared all over the Deep South and had to be militarily dealt with. To quote Majewski again, fantasies of great metropolises Bustling factories and bulging warehouses gave way to a reality of burnt plantations, ruined cities, and hungry soldiers and civilians. And yet, even as the population starved and the state collapsed in the face of southern regulations and northern invasion, the Confederate government still called upon southerners to cast aside their individual rights in the name of the cause. One Southern journal, DeBose Review, which had been a leading secessionist paper, put it succinctly. Quote, every man should feel that he has an interest in the state and that the state in a measure leans upon him and he should rouse himself to efforts as bold and heroic as if all depended upon his single arm. It is implied in the spirit which times demand that all private interests are sacrificed to the public good. The state becomes everything and the individual, nothing. So in conclusion here, in the end, the Confederate socialist experiment was obviously crushed in the War of Northern Aggression. So it's only a hypothetical question to ask, what if the Confederacy had managed to achieve a peace settlement with the Union in 1864? Something that actually was quite a possibility. What would an independent Confederacy have actually looked like? Well, uh, one thing's for sure, it would have been a far cry from the decentralized states' rights utopia its modern-day defenders wish it had been. And um, I think the lesson of this is wars between nations are rarely, if ever, fought between good and evil, and we should really stop trying so hard to pick sides. Uh, thank you.